I'd like to join with Jeremy in welcoming everyone to the services this morning. It's my prayer this morning that the things that I have to say will be edifying to you. I hope that you find them uplifting as I have in my studies. And uh, hopefully we can walk away from here and say that we've been edified and maybe strengthened for the week to come. This morning our text is going to come from 1 Samuel chapter 25 verses 2 through 42. I'm not going to read those verses this morning. But it's a story that I've only heard spoke of once and it was when I was young. And I think it was either by uh, Jerry McCorkle or by Marlon Cole and I'm not sure which. And I just remember the story. I don't remember what their points were. I don't remember what they had to say about it. But I do remember that the story stuck with me into my old age, I guess you say. And I thought, I thought about it several times of how I wanted to do it, how I wanted to present the lesson, and I've never done it. But now is that time, and hopefully, like I said, we can, we can take something away from it. The story's about a couple, a married couple, by the name of Nabal and Abigail. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but the story takes place when King David is on the run from Saul. Saul has decided he's going to kill King David, and he's after David. And David is out in the wilderness, as you will, away from civilization, and he's out and he's camped near where Nabal and Abigail live. Now, Nabal was a very wealthy man. The Bible says he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And this guy would send his uh, servants with the sheep and his shepherds out into the wilderness, if you will, and they would graze there. And as they were there, they came in contact with King David. And David and his 600 men were out there, and they were encamped away from Saul trying to, to stay alive. And while they're out there, Nabal's shepherds are there, and they protect Nabal's sheep and Nabal's uh, servants, and they take care of them. Obviously, they were on the run. They could have slaughtered his herds and kept them for themselves. But instead, David and his men chose to protect Nabal's servants and his livelihood. And as the story goes, and I do encourage you to read the story because there's lots of other things that you can pull out of this other than what we're going to pull out of it this morning, hopefully. But the fact was that David hears by the grapevine, as you would, that Nabal is beginning to shear his sheep. So at that time when they would do that, they would get a bunch of people together because they didn't have electric shears. They did it all by hand with, with uh, wool scissors. And so he's shearing his sheep, and he sends ten men over to Nabal out of his army. And he says, Nabal, he says, look, while your people were out in the wilderness, we protected them, we saved your sheep, and we protected them from all the things that could have happened to them while they were in the wild. And we beg you that you would allow to feed us as you would feed your servants during the time of sheep shearing. And that was, of course, the, the custom. They would have a big feast because you had several people there shearing your sheep. Well, as those men are standing there, Nabal begins to answer them, and he, he starts off with, he says, Who is this David, and who is this Jesse, that I should know them? The Bible says Nabal was a very arrogant man. Very churlish, I believe, is the word they use there in verse, verse 1. And he says, who is David? He knew who David was. Nobody in the land of Israel didn't know about David. They sang songs about David. They said Saul killed his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. He knew who David was. He knew that he was the next appointed king of Israel. And he knew what kind of man he was. And he knew what kind of army that those 600 men were that with him. These weren't guys that you trifled with. These were guys that the Bible says, just for fun on a snowy day, one of them went down into a pit and slew a lion, just for giggles. That's the kind of men that Nabal 
was standing up against. And he said, who is that that I should obey him? You can kind of start to see the kind of man Nabal is. So David's men leave, and they go back to David, and they say, David, he said, who's David? And who's Jesse? Well, we all know what kind of man David was. You didn't mess with him either. And he said, all right. He told everybody, he said, gird on your swords. We're going to go, and we're going to destroy everything that Nabal, Nabal has. He said, there won't be a man left standing in his camp when we're through with him. And he said, we're going to destroy him because he said, I gave him kindness and he has repaid me with evil. Well, in the meantime, while this story is going on, after Nabal has, has talked roughly to David's servants and sent them away, a servant comes to Abigail, his wife. The Bible says she was a beautiful lady. She was a godly lady. And they said, Nabal has just, has just sent David's men back. And he's, ch he's chastised them and he chided with them and told them that he wasn't going to help David. And Abigail, I'm sure, gets that sinking feeling in her heart because she knows what kind of man she's married to, but she also knows what kind of man David is. And she knows who David serves, and that's the living God of Israel. And so she says, make haste. She said, gets her servants together, and she, she says, get the animals, get the fatlings that we've killed. She took, she took, uh, took uh, meat. She took wine. She took raisins, the Bible said. Big clusters, a massive amount. And she puts them on... on uh, the donkeys, and she begins to go, and she's headed towards David. Now think about that. You know, in that society, in that time, she was not thought of as equal to a man. But she's taken it upon herself to go out and head, and head David off, the future king of Israel. The man that kills ten thousands, and she meets him on the way with his food, and she offers it to David, and she gets down, and she bows herself to David, and she begins to, as I read it and as I see it, she begins to do somewhat of a prophecy from God. And she begins to tell him, said, David, I understand that you're a mighty man, and I understand that God is with you, and the enemies of David will be put down like a rock from the middle of a sling, and they will be taken down. And she begins to look to him and she says, my husband has done wrong. But she says, I beg of you, anything that he's done, you take out on me. But see, she takes that on herself. And David has compassion because we know what the Bible says about David. He was a man after God's own heart. And he said, because you prophesied and you've brought to light to me that God is the one that needs to fight my battles and not me to go and revenge myself upon this man and the evils of your husband. He said, I will spare everything that you have. And so she leaves there and she goes home and she gets there about the time the feast is done and Nabal's good and drunk and he's very happy and she decides in herself that she's not going to tell Nabal till in the morning. Let him enjoy the party. And the next morning she gets up and she tells Nabal all that happened that David was going to come kill him, and that she went and saved him. And the Bible says his heart stopped within him, and he became a stone. He had a stroke, or his heart, something happened, and he went catatonic. And he laid there for 10 days, and finally after 10 days, God smote Nabal that he died. And if you read on in the story, after that was done, David sent and corresponded with Abigail, and he ended up, and he ended up and married Abigail. That's something that we don't read about a lot is Abigail being David's wife. But he did. He had respect for her, for what she had done. 
and the things that she had done. You know, as we look at this, like I said, there's lots of things we can take away from it. First of all, I'd like to say something about Abigail to you ladies, to, the, to, to those of you that think that your role in the church is just to cook food or, or just to send cards. It's way more than that. See, a lot of times we read the virtuous woman and we talk about what she did. How many times is Abigail forgotten in the deeds she done that she saved an entire household by her humility? by her willingness to go and talk to someone to head off trouble. Women, your roles in the church are far more than just mother and deliverers of food, which are all good things, don't get me wrong. But you have a part to play. You have a part to play in delivering the gospel. You have a part to play in delivering the gospel to your children, to raise and help raise godly children. I tell you, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for my wife and the godly children that she helped raise. So that's just a side note of what I wanted to say. I did not want to mention that this morning without saying that. But I want to ask you a question. I want you to ask yourself this question. Where do you see yourself in this story? Are you a Nabal or are you an Abigail? Men, are you an Abigail? Women, are you a Nabal? Same, vice versa. That's the question I want to ask you this morning. And as we go through that, I want us to keep that in mind. What category do you fall into this morning? As we start off, obviously, we're going to start off with Nabal. Are we a Nabal? Nabal was prideful, and he had a sense of self-importance. And I think we can all identify with that. I know I can. We stand and we say, you know what? We're Americans. And it's been said before, second of all, we're Texans, or maybe first of all, we're Texans, and second of all, we're Americans. We think like that, don't we? We live in a country that we, that we pride ourselves on. We do what we want. We are self-reliant. We don't have to answer to anybody. We have the Constitution. We have all these different things that provide us these liberties. It's very easy for us to realize, for me anyway, to see that pride and self-importance. We're proud of ourselves and our accomplishments. We, we stand on our laurels a lot of times, and I think a lot of times if we aren't careful, we put our identity in what we are. I know I've been guilty of that myself. Put my pride not in that I'm a Christian, but in that I am a farmer, or I'm an insurance agent, or you, whatever that is that you do in your life. We can be lifted up with pride and self-importance. But you know, what's it say in Luke chapter 18? We have the example of the rich young farmer. And I think many times I see myself in that. You know, he said, I had a good crop. He said, therefore, I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger. And I, and I, and I, we know how the story goes on and on. I did this, I did this, I did this. How many times has that happened in our life? Well, I tell you what, I was at work today, and boy, I got this, and, and man, I'm, I'm just good at what I do. We have those thoughts. So did Nabal. He was very lifted up in what he was. He thought he was a very rich and powerful man, so much so that he would stand up to the future king of, of Israel and his 600 soldiers. He was very proud. You know, he was too proud to admit what he was compared to David. How many times do we ourselves, are we too proud to admit our weaknesses? Again, guilty. 
Are we too proud to admit? You know, Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, it says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. You know what's mentioned on down from that when it goes through uh, uh, murderers, debate, malignities, all those things that it goes down there through that list? He lists pride. Pride's listed with murderers, adulterers, fornicators. And you know, we don't like to think, well, you know, I'm a little proud of what I do. And you know what that says? If you are proud, you don't like to retain God in your knowledge. That's what pride is. Me. Me. Not God. And you know what? When we are proud, we will not admit that we've got a problem. Because I don't know about Nabal, but I'm betting at some point in there when he went, I wonder if that was a good idea for me to send David's guys packing. Ah, it's, off. it's all right. I'm Nabal. I'm somebody special. You know, pride gets in our way in giving control to God. And that's exactly what happened. David was God's anointed, and Nabal refused to give control over to God and to help his servant. And he sent them packing. John chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. I want to turn over and read that one. John chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. It says, and this, is, this is Nicodemus talking to Jesus. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily I say unto thee, We speak that, that, we, know, that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. How many times does God speak to us? Me and Carl and Emily were talking about this the other day when, when we were studying. You know, we, we, we said that exact same thing. How many times does the Bible speak to us and lays it out for us and gives us what we got to do? And we go, what do you want? What do you want us to do? How many times does that a verse apply to me? How many times does it apply to you? And Jesus is going, I give it to you. I'm giving you the things that I've seen, and I'm laying them out to you, and you won't hear them. I think too many times that's the exact thing that Jesus is saying to me. I'm laying it out there, and you won't listen. That's the way Nabal was. He wasn't going to listen to David. He wasn't going to listen to God's anointed because he was too important. He was unable to submit to David, his fellow Israelite that needed help. His men needed help. And he wasn't willing to submit to that. James chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, it's the, the parable, or, or the, the, not a parable, but James talks about having respect of persons. And he said, if there's a poor person that comes in to your assemblies, and you say to the rich man that's came in before him, sit here in the front, sit here in the good place. And you that have come in that have poor and have the vile raiment, you sit here under my footstool. If we have that kind of respect of persons, we do not have a submissive heart. And whether we like it or not, brothers and sisters, as Christians, every single one of us have to have a submissive heart. But when we have pride and arrogance like Nabal did, we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to do that to others. And you know what? If we're not willing to do that, we're not willing to do that to God. We're not willing to submit to God if we have that pride and that arrogance and self-importance in our life. 
Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, Stephen in his, what the, what the scholars call his apology, or his defense of the gospel when he's talking to the Jews. And he begins to talk to them and tell them about their history. And he looks at them and he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, you do always resist what God has to say. And you've killed the prophets. And he goes on and he talks about all the things they've done. I ask the question, can that ever be said about us? Is that the category that we're in? Are we too proud to give control to God? Nabal saw himself as self-reliant, a self-made man, somebody that pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Again, that's something that we can, we can all identify with. We all champion that story we hear in, in American culture from those that started off with nothing, and we brag that in America you can start off as a street sweeper and you can be a CEO if you'll just put your mind to it. But the flaw in that is, is somewhere in there, God was there to help us. But somehow that gets left out of the story. Somehow in our lives, when we have self-reliance and self-importance, we begin to think, look what I did. Boy, if, if, I, you know, if you would just be like me and follow my example, you can climb that ladder. You know what? You're not self-reliant. Somebody helped you somewhere. And for sure, if not a human on this earth, you better look to the guy upstairs that gave you breath in your lungs. I want to ask you a question. If you were standing on a thousand foot drop and there's a raging wildfire behind you and all you have is a coil of rope and there's no way to go but except down that thousand foot cliff, would you take a piece of quarter inch rope and tie it to a tree and slide, what, slide down on that? Not if you're very smart, you wouldn't. But I want you to think about this. If we were willing to do that, that's the same as us thinking that we are self-reliant and that we are self-made and that we need nothing else in our lives. But you know what? You can take that piece of quarter-inch nylon rope and you can braid it with two other pieces and you have three braided together and you take, do that two more times and you do it together and you make a big, thick, braided rope, then you can slide down to safety. But see, you can't do it on your own. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes says. Uh, turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's one of my, I guess, favorite or go-to passages because it just, it reveals to me how helpless that God tries to show us that we are. Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up again. If two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. We read that a lot of times in, in marriage ceremonies, talking about putting God in the center of a marriage. But you know what? You're not going to make it if you don't put God in the center. So I ask you again, are we trapped in self-reliance? And I want to ask another question. If we are struggling with self-reliance and reliance only on ourselves and not God and no one else, what makes you think you're any different from the failures that went before you? 
Let that question sink in. You know what? Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. He had all the wisdom. He had all the money. He had everything that you could possibly want. And what happened to him? He went out on his own. He went away from God. He married strange wives. They took him away from God. And in the end, he said, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. Our self-reliance is just that. Vanity and vexation of spirit. It's useless. Nabal was selfish, and he was unwilling to help others. He was unwilling to help David, like we said. That reminds me of Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 30, 32. It's the passage of the Good Samaritan. As it says, a man went down from Jerusalem, and he was on the road, and he fell among thieves that stripped him of his raiment and beat him and left him half dead. And here comes this Samaritan that the Jews hated. They wanted nothing to do with him. They couldn't even eat with him. And this Samaritan stops and he sees this Jew that if he would have seen him on the road, would have walked way away from him, maybe hurled an insult at him. And he looks at him and he bends down and he tends his wounds. And he picks him up and he puts him on his, on his beast and he takes him to an inn. And he takes care of him and he pulls out money when he leaves the next morning. And he said, whatever you spend on him over this, he said, I'll pay, the, pay you innkeeper when I get back. And he stopped and he cared for him. Where do we fall at in that story? Are we Nabal? Now I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about sweet Abigail. And I ask you the question, is that where you're at this morning? Maybe you're not a Nabal, maybe you're an Abigail. But let's look at her for a little while this morning. Obviously, she had humility. She was humble in her spirit. Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 through 12 Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 through 12. But he that is great among you shall be a servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus, in his own words there, he says, you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be exalted? Be humble. You want God to love you? Be like a child. But how many times do we conform ourselves to that line of character traits? I know many times I think and I feel like if we need to be exalted, if I want to be exalted, I have to be proud. Our human nature tells us that is not the way humans do. We, I even, it's a saying that, that I heard long ago and, and I, I struggle with not really wanting to, to believe it. You know, it says people mistake kindness for stupidity. And there are people that do that. But that does not change the fact that we as Christians have to be humble. And we have to love other people and we have to serve. And in doing so, that means sometimes we don't tell people exactly what we think. And I know some of you know my character and y'all are laughing at that. Because it is very hard for me sometimes to keep my mouth shut. That's what we have to do. That's what God says. Be humble. Suffer the shame. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't make you any less smart. Just because somebody thinks you're dumb. And I heard somebody say it one time. He said, you know what other people think about you is really none of your business. And that was just kind of like a slap in my face. I'm like, what? It's about me? It's not. Your opinion of me is none of my business. We have to be humble. 
You know, and in doing so, we have to have self-reflection. And that's not fun. That's not fun at all on my case. Do we see ourselves as we truly are? Do we see ourselves as other people see us? And, and more importantly, do we see ourselves as God sees us? We have to take those blinders off, people. We have to see ourselves as we truly are. You know, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, he says, All our righteousness is as filthy rags. It doesn't matter the little old lady that you helped across the road, the person that you pulled out of a burning car to save their life, the wonderful deeds that you've done, compared to the glory of God, it is filthy rags. You have no reason. I have no reason to boast. I have nothing that I have done that has made me worthy of the love that God has shed, shed for me. The death His Son died on the cross. I'm not worthy of that no matter all the good deeds that I think I've done. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And we, have to realize, we have to realize that we are weak and that we need help. We have to realize that we can't do this on our own. I mean, you can just look around at all of the self-made people that try to do it without God, and they may be wealthy. They may have a big house. But you look at their lives. You don't have to go very far to turn on your TV, look at Hollywood. They got it all, don't they? And they're all on their fifth or sixth marriage. They got drug problems. Their kids hate them. It just goes down the line. Can't do it alone. We have to realize that we need help. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we have to realize all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means me. That means you. We're all there. Ain't none of us special except for the fact that God loves us. What we do doesn't make us special. It's the love of God that makes us special. You know, if we're going to be humble, we have to realize that we have to submit. And you know, that's a dirty word in our society, especially when it comes, uh, when we talk about in our marriages where the Bible says, and the women are to submit themselves to their husband. Boy, people recoil at that. Oh, man, I'm not going to have that in my wedding. Don't tell me I've got to submit to a man. I'm here to tell you, if you have any kind of relationship in this world, that relationship requires submission. If you are a boss and you have an employee and you send them out to a job, you give them a certain amount of your submission that they can do that job for you. If you are a husband, you submit to your wife in ways. Wife, if you have a husband, you are submitting to them. Elders, deacons, friends, it doesn't matter. Family. And the sooner we can learn that, the better it is. That we, if we will submit to each other, it will make a healthy relationship. It will make a healthy church. It will make a healthy marriage. It will make a healthy friendship. And it will make a healthy family. We can't be to the point that we think we can do it all and that we don't have to submit to anyone because we do. Nabal found that out the hard way. We don't want to find out the hard way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, talks about us esteeming others better than ourselves. You know, I don't care who it is sitting in this audience. In some way, you're better than me. 
in some way, you're better than the person sitting beside you. Some, you, you realize what I'm trying to say here? There are certain talents that all of us have, and they're not all the same. And we could submit to each other and say, I appreciate what you do. I love you for what you do. Thank you for helping me. That's a submission right there. And if we are too arrogant to see that, we're not going to make a good friend. We're not going to make a good Christian. We're not going to make a good anything. You know, I don't know that anybody's ever looked at the character of Nabal or anybody that has those characteristics and said, you know what, that's the kind of guy I want to be. You know, most people, if you think, if you've heard the good things that people say about them, say, they're good people. They're kind people. They're loving people. They'll give you the shirt off their back. That's the kind of people we want to be. That's the kind of people that people want to be around. They don't want to be around Nabal's. They want to be around Abigail's. And obviously, we have to realize we have to submit to God. And I tell you, humanness runs heavy. It runs heavy in this country. And if we're not careful, it'll run very heavy in us because we are so prone to that. Self-reliance, humanism, and all that is is replacing God with ourselves. And you know what? It can sneak in on us before we realize it. It's a, it's a very, very slick and invasive idea. But we get lifted up with ourselves, and we don't want to submit to God. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 Turn over and read that. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high places and the holy place. And listen, I dwell with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to receive the spirit of humble and to receive the heart of the contrite ones. You know what he's saying right there? He says, I reside in heaven. And he said, I reside... In the humble of heart. And he said, when I reside in the humble of heart, it allows you to see the humility and humbleness of someone else. See, if you're going to help somebody, you've got to submit yourself to God. And in doing so, you can help someone else. Have you ever thought, you know, we talk about God being, or us being God's hands and us being God's feet. We talk about that a lot. We talk about how's the gospel going to be spread if we don't do it. You ever thought that maybe the kind word that you come to someone just out of the blue, you felt you saw them and you thought, you know what? Something's not right there. And you say, brother, sister, are you okay? I love you. Is there anything I can do? Have you ever thought that maybe that was an answer to a prayer? You ever thought that you were the answer through God for someone else's prayer in the kind word that you gave, in the encouragement that you gave, the love that you gave, the help that you gave? And it didn't mean that much to you at the time. You just saw something, but when that person walked away, they said, man, thank you. You never know. But you know what? If you're not humble enough to look into yourself and be willing to do that, and to submit to someone, to, to put your uncomfortableness or your pride aside and say, are you okay? Step outside your comfort zone. Can I do something for you? Can I pray with you? You never know what that person was going through, and you'll never know what that meant to them unless it's happened to you. 
Be humble. Submit to your others and submit to God. We have to rely on God's mercy and His strength. You know, and again, that, that's a very tough issue. But we have to allow God to forgive us. And that is a very problem that we have as human beings is, is we live these lives and we ac accumulate this baggage and these scars that we drag around with us through our entire life. And, you know, I used to think as I got older it would get better, and it doesn't get better. The baggage gets more. And it piles up, and, and pretty soon it's a sled. You know, we all know that feeling, and we're pulling it around. And we just sit there and we think, well, you know, a lot of times we hear the statements, well, I've done too much for God to forgive me. You don't understand what I've done in my past. If you just knew what I'd done, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't put up with me. You've all heard it. We've all thought it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 62 says, He that put his hands to the, pl to, to the plow and looketh back is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying right there? All that baggage that I see trailing behind me, don't look back. You did it, it's done, it's in the past, and if you are my child, I don't see it. You're the only one that sees it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, 14 and verse 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will, the, will your Father forgive you your trespasses. We read that all the time. And we apply it to, you know what, I need to forgive you for what you've done. And if I don't forgive you, then, you know, God's not going to forgive me. I want to say something else. If you don't forgive yourself, that commandment is to you and to me. If I don't forgive myself, how can God forgive me? If it works for you, it works for me. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If God either say, if he says it's, it's either true or it's not, which one are you going to pick? That's Jesus in his own words. I choose to believe Jesus and I have to forgive me. And I have to forgive you and vice versa. This business of not forgiving ourselves is nothing but a tool of the devil that will allow him to drag you down and to pin you in a position where you can never get out of. But Jesus said, don't do that. He said, don't look back. It's not productive. You can't make a straight row on a lister by looking back. You always got to look forward. You can't drive down the road with your head in the floorboard and expect to stay in your lane. Don't look back and forgive yourself. Allow God to be in control. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, You are bought with a price. You know what you were bought with? You know what I was bought with? The precious blood of Jesus Christ when he was nailed on that cross and he died for my sins and he died for yours. And it was a terrible cost. And I was bought with that price. And you were bought with that price. So why not let God be in control? He showed us how much he loved us. He did not keep back his most precious son. 
So why will we not offer that control up to him? He's just asking for us to do what he asks us to. He's not asking for anything other than our love and our obedience. And the price that was asked of him was his son. It's a pretty small trade-off, isn't it? It should be. We got a lot bigger problem with arrogance and pride than, than I think we do. We must deny our control. If we're going to turn things over to God and we're going to let Him be in control, we have to, as a person, turn over that control. Some of us that's easier, some of us it's harder. So you have to turn it loose. You know, I've talked about before with people, you know, we, have the, we talk about the scenario of laying our sins at the foot of the cross. But my problem is I'll try to lay that sin at the foot of the cross it's, and then I go over here and then I'm going, oh, I better go back over there and help Jesus out with that. I better pick that up from the foot of the... No. When you leave it at the foot of the cross, leave it at the foot of the cross. And if you have to keep going back to put it down, keep going back to put it down because that's the only way you're ever going to get rid of it. You don't ever get rid of anything you're picking it back up. You have to put it away. Deny our control. Let God be in control. And that's tough. In times of trouble, just rely on Him and quit worrying about what you... Now, I'm not saying not, not take proactive steps. I'm not saying sit set set on your couch and never do anything to help the problem. But the fact is, you cannot fix everything. Let God handle it. If it's a problem in your life, turn to the prayer. You know, we were talking about this the other night. You know, how many times do we sit there and we go, you know what, I just wished I didn't have this problem and I can't do this and, and all that. And somebody goes, prayed about it? I've been guilty and go, no. You want to turn over control? Pray about it. Turn it over to God. You can't give him something if you don't tell him about it. You have to follow through. Deny our control. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24 Galatians 5 and verse 24, it says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections and the lust. And I know that's talking about the lust that we look after, but you know what? Refusing to turn over control is just another, another uh, form of, of uh, not giving things to God. I, I, I can't think of how to say that right at this point. But the fact is, if we're going to be Christ, we have to crucify everything that stands in our way. And how many times does control stand in our way? We have to leave it behind. We have to crucify it, just like everything else that we've tried to do in our lives. And the last thing I want to talk about this morning, are we willing to help others? Abigail was. She was willing to humble herself and humiliate herself before David and his men, but she was willing to do that. Are we willing to help others? Are we willing to help others with our time and our resources? Or do we prefer sitting in our comfortable chair over helping someone out? Again, we never know what people are going through. What that little bit of time, that little bit of visit in the hospital, hospital room, that prayer, that text, that card, at the time seems so small to us, but the person that receiving it, Maybe you talked them off a ledge. 
Maybe they were having problems with, with sin or temptation, and you're, hey, brother, are you okay? Hey, sister, are you okay? Can I do something? Sometimes the answer is, no, I'm fine. Sometimes the answer is, you don't know how bad I need your help. We have to be willing to do that. And we're not, we're not going to do that from our comfortable chair. We're going to do that by going out and loving people. We're going to do that by going out and seeing people and helping. That's what we're here for. How many times are we so thankful for help? How many times have we received help? What can I do for you? Oh, nothing. I'm just glad to help. You know what you can do? Go help somebody else. Go help someone else. Go pray for someone else. Go visit someone else. You want to know how you feel small and insignificant. You sit and you don't visit with somebody. And I'm guilty of this. I've been guilty of this. And then something happens to you and you're laying in a hospital bed and you're just going visitor after visitor after visitor after visitor are coming in to see you and they're going, are you okay? Do you need anything? And the next one, are you okay? And you know what? You begin to think, how sad I am. All these people took time and I can't get myself out of my chair. That'll make you feel real humble real quick. Let's be an Abigail. Let's love others. Let's help each other. You know, the second thing I want to ask, are we willing to help others? Now, that's a big one in my book. Are we willing to help others with our forgiveness? You know, many times in the Christian world, you know, we think on the fact about forgiveness, and we think, well, you know, what you did was bad, and in order, if you're going to talk about it, you've got to be punished somehow. Because if I'm a Christian, I've got to punish you in order for me to be right with God and me not to condone it. And I challenge you with that statement. You, t- you show me where that is in the Bible that God tells you that you've got to punish somebody in, to, in order to show that you don't condone it. I'm pretty sure you're not going to find it because it ain't there. Now, he doesn't tell us that we need to gloss over sin. Jesus never did. With a woman taken in adultery, he didn't tell her how bad she was. He didn't say all the things she did. He said when they walked away and they didn't accuse her, he said, ma'am, where is your accusers? He said, they're not here, Lord. And he said, go and sin no more. He didn't tell her. He didn't berate about all the things that she's done and how horrible she was and how evil she was. He said, go and sin no more. Forgiveness is very vital as a Christian. We've got to give of our time, but we've got to give our forgiveness too. Because I don't know whether you know it or not, we read that verse before, said all of sin and come short of the glory of God. It don't matter what, how little you think your sin is or how bad you think mine is, the fact is we both need forgiveness and they're both sin and we're both straying from God when we're allowing those things to, to build up in our lives. Our brothers and sisters are owed our forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18 in verse 23. Matthew chapter 18. Pages are sticking together. I apologize. Matthew chapter 18 verses 23 through 35. 
Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king, which when he had taken account of his servants, and when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for, so, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord said of that servant, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. Is that where we're at? We've all read that verse before. You know, this guy was called before his master and he you know, owed him basically thousands upon thousands of dollars. He said, I'm going to sell you and I'm going to sell your family and I'm going to deliver you to the tormentors until you can pay it all. And he said, no, please don't do that. Give me mercy, give me mercy, please. And the Lord was moved with compassion. And then that very same guy, he went out and found a guy that owed him a couple of bucks and he grabbed him by the throat and he said, pay me what you owe me. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that stands there and goes, God, forgive me for all the things that I've done, the evil things, the big sled that I'm pulling around behind me. Forgive me for that. And then I go out and grab my brother and say, you are horrible. That's exactly what it's like when we don't offer forgiveness. When we don't give that forgiveness to others that are, that are asking for it and that are hurting we're just like that guy. We're grabbing him by the throat and going, ah, you owe me. We as humans like justice. And I've said this before. We like justice. We cry for justice. Injustice is done. We want justice, right? Well, you better not be crying for justice as a Christian because if we were to get what we, were des we deserve, we would have been on that cross instead of Jesus. We don't need to be crying for justice, brothers and sisters. We need to be crying for mercy. And we need it on our brothers and sisters too, not just us. If we want Christ's mercy, we better be willing to give it to each other. We have to do that. And not only do we have to give our forgiveness, but we have to give our love. Not just forgiveness, we have to love people. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, if you look deep inside yourself, if I look deep inside myself, I see my flaws. And I can see it when somebody loves me, and I know when it's true. And that makes all the difference. Especially when there's love and forgiveness. We have to have, we have, to have love in order to forgive. Galatians chapter 1, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 says, uh, no, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's nowhere in that that says... Get your brother, round him up, and give him a good verbal beating for the things that he's done. That's not in there. The justice comes from God, not us. The judgment comes from God, not us. We're here to love, to protect, and restore 
our brothers and sisters. That's what we're here for. And when you do that, you fulfill the love of Christ. That's what we all want, isn't it? We all want to fulfill the love of Christ. I'll leave the lesson with you this morning. All I will say to the end of that is in a world full of Nabals, just be an Abigail. We had not talked necessarily on the first principles, but if there's one here that has been taught and would like to be baptized, don't put that off. We're not guaranteed that we're going to walk out those doors right now. I'm not guaranteed a tomorrow, and neither are you. Don't put that off. Get right with God. Start your walk with Him. You've got a family here waiting with open arms. If there's one here that's a Christian and they feel that they've strayed from that path, someone that's struggling, someone that's got issues, we want to pray for you. We want to, love, we want to love you and show you the compassion of Christ. If there's one of either class, we ask you to come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.